funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, Senator Tammy Murphy, the first lady will throw her hat in the ring to challenge the state's embattled senior U.S. Senator, but is she ready to run? I understand she's probably going to get the majority of the lines, if not all of them, um, and I, I, she'll be a heavy favorite in that way, but I wouldn't underestimate someone like Andy Kim. Plus, a blue wave in District 30, Rabbi Ave Schnall turns a three-decade-long political tide by defeating the Republican incumbent. I think we're going to take one term at a time, but this definitely opens up an opportunity to have significant changes. Also, a show of solidarity. Presidential hopeful Chris Christie on the ground in Israel, meeting with families of hostages as heavy fighting rages on in Gaza. And panic alarm. An investigation by NJ Advance Media takes a deep dive into Newark's deadly cargo ship fire that killed two firefighters. Newark had no standard operating procedures or guidelines for fighting shipboard fires. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. New Jersey appears to be on the brink of a political showdown. First Lady Tammy Murphy will announce her bid this week to be the Democratic nominee in the 2024 race for the U.S. Senate seat. That, according to sources familiar with the First Lady's decision. The news comes just days after sitting Democratic Congressman Andy Kim officially launched his campaign for the seat. The 41-year-old former Obama administration staffer kicked off his run Friday night at a South Jersey brewery, saying he's sick of a broken Congress and will fight to restore trust as he seeks to take over the seat of indicted U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, adding he'll stay in the race even if the party machine decides to back the Murphy machine. Senior political correspondent David Cruz reports. Whether you believe that there's been a groundswell of support from the party's rank and file chanting, run, Tammy, run, or you believe that the first lady's always just been a candidate in search of an office, it is inevitable now that Tammy Murphy for Senate is going to be a thing. <laughs> there are no groundswells for, for rich white women who live on the Navasink. I'm sorry, it just doesn't occur. Ouch. Now you may say, sure, that's coming from a Republican, and you'd be right. But while you may not be hearing it out loud, there is a genuine undercurrent of resentment among some Democrats, women of color particularly, who suggest that there were several other candidates better known and in some cases maybe better or equally qualified, who didn't even get a courtesy call from Team Murphy. New Jersey voters are tired of political bosses, men in the back of a room over steak dinners, deciding who gets to run for office by giving them the line and who gets elected. Patricia Campos may yet mount an electoral challenge to that party line system, which bestows favored ballot position on candidates liked by the party bosses. In this case, it appears that's Tammy Murphy. We have a lot of qualified women, women of color, candidates 
who should enter this race and speak about their vision for New Jersey's future. An, an endorsement by party leaders and party bosses limits the ability of voters to have choice. And that system makes a candidate, even one many Democrats find palatable, less attractive because there wasn't an open primary, meaning no party line. It should be that those who are doing a lot of the political work in this state can feel and see themselves in the political system. Um, Again, working families, we feel very strongly about the line and the way that it allows the county parties to put their thumb on the scale. I think it's very important that we do have a true primary where voters fully decide uh, who the candidate is. All of those things may certainly be true, but in the current world of New Jersey politics, the inevitable Ms. Murphy is coming as a shock to no one. Least off, Congressman Andy Kim, who was unavailable today but has said Murphy is not a factor in his thinking. Look, I know that there are a number of different people who are still um, at least named that they might be considering that. A number of them are colleagues of mine, uh, whether colleagues or Tammy, you know, I've, I've known them for a number of years. I have deep respect for them. So um, I hope they make their decision in the same way that I did, which is what's uh, best for New Jersey, what's best for the country. And, um, you know, I respect that. It should also be noted that as of right now, at least, the incumbent, a well-funded Democratic powerhouse with the highest name recognition of the bunch, says he's not stepping back. That would be the easy way out. Uh, as it relates to a primary, you know, uh, I trust the people of New Jersey. I've trusted them uh, for nearly 50 years. In terms of her being perhaps the worst candidate the Democrats could put forward, at least of the of the few that have, have bandied about their names, um, I think that is for sure. There may be a Democratic primary next year. Whether there will be a contest is to be determined. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. It looks like Democrats landed another surprise in last week's legislative elections, likely picking up a sixth seat in the Assembly. The Associated Press this morning retracted its call on the race in the 8th District, putting the Democrat ahead by just 27 votes, piling on to the blue wave voters created, including in the Jersey Shore's 30th District, where Rabbi Avi Schnall became the first Democrat since the 1990s to win a seat in an area long considered a Republican stronghold. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan has that story. Lakewood's conservative Orthodox community wanted a seat in the room where it happens to poach lyrics from Broadway's Hamilton with their Republican lawmakers locked out of decision-making by Trenton's Democratic majority, Lakewood's religious leaders took a drastic step. They backed a Democrat, Rabbi Avi Schnall, for assembly in LD30. And he won. This is a historic moment that for the first time in decades, the district is being represented in the majority party and we can actually get stuff done. And um, that's what we're looking forward to. But Schnall says he switched from Republican to Democrat about six months before the election as part of the plan. I know the frustration. And at a certain point, people want to change. And that's what, the, that's what the district says. One of Lakewood's own um, homeboys, if you will, being um, 
as a member of the legislature, because th that's where the action happens, when you're in the room, when you're at the table. Rabbi Moshe Weisberg says Lakewood's Orthodox Jewish voters drove a whopping 48% turnout in LD30 and elected Schnall to the assembly by a 22-point margin over incumbent Republican Ed Thompson. Avi Schnell, like I said, whether he ran as a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, would have won because they did, it did a tremendous job in getting the vote out, 48%. And so when you have one community that dominates a legislative district, it has the ability to swamp everything else, even some fairly large towns like uh, Wall and Howell. Um, it's just, you know, they can't hold a candle to um, that number of registered voters. Lakewood's demographics give it more political muscle. The ongoing influx of Orthodox Jewish residents raising large families pushed the town's population to 135,000 in just a decade. Explosive growths wreaked havoc with public school budgets versus funding for private religious schools and other issues. Schnall's on a mission. There's somebody in the room that when conversations are being had about whether it's infrastructure, whether it's funding formulas, whether it's whatever it's about, someone is there able to say, just to wave the hand and say, hi, there's a place called Lakewood. Lakewood can depend on Schnall to remain reliably conservative on issues like abortion, LGBTQ, and parental choice. LD30 did re-elect its other two Republican legislative incumbents, including longtime Senator Bob Singer. He explained his community's willingness to score political influence by switching party allegiance. So they're not linked to DNR. But I think on the on the state level, they're they're testing the water to see uh, having a person in the Democratic caucus can move the, the needle. I don't think it can. But listen, I've been wrong before. So what does this mean for future elections? Will Lakewood target other Republicans to elect a Democrat? Maybe. I can't see ever not supporting Senator Singer, but should he retire? I think it needs a fresh left to see where we go from here. I really don't know if I were to leave whether that the person taking over would be Republican or Democrat. I think we can take one term at a time, but this definitely opens up an opportunity to have s significant changes. He says Lakewood's eager to flex its political muscle. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Former governor and GOP presidential hopeful Chris Christie on Sunday visited Israel, touring a kibbutz destroyed in the October 7th attack by Hamas militants. That triggered the war in the Middle East that has now killed thousands of Israeli and Palestinian civilians. During his visit, Christie said the U.S. must stand, quote, shoulder to shoulder with its ally Israel and backed Israel's rejection of a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, even as international pressure mounts to stop or scale back Israel's strikes on Gaza, with the death toll rising to more than 11,000 Palestinians, according to the health ministry there run by Hamas, saying a third are women and children. New Jersey is home to the nation's largest Palestinian population. Population. But in an interview with CBS New York, Christie had critical words for pro-Palestine supporters here. Well, look, I think some of them just have to be confused. They have to be given horrible information, and I think that's happening, particularly on college campuses all over this country, um, by people with a much different agenda than the truth. 
Well, it's a tough number to pinpoint, but the latest count from the state's Office of Homelessness Prevention finds New Jersey is making strides toward lowering the number of people without a place to call home. Data out today shows a double-digit drop in residents who are homeless and unsheltered while revealing the biggest factors contributing to how people end up on the streets. And it's probably not what you'd think. Ted Goldberg reports. New Jersey's Department of Community Affairs says there's been a 23% drop in the number of people statewide experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Using data from point-in-time counts and other state data, leaders say New Jersey's unsheltered homeless population has dropped from about 10,000 people to about 7,600 people from October of 2022 to this past October. We are within a confidence interval right, of counting, but particularly what the limiting factors there are. Would I say it's high confidence? Definitely. Would I say it's 100% confident? Right, we're working towards getting that. Michael Callahan is the director of the Office of Homelessness Prevention. He says leaders are learning more about what causes homelessness, so they have a better idea of reducing it. The DCA's new report says the most common cause of unsheltered homelessness is being asked to leave a shared residence. That accounts for 26% of people statewide who experienced homelessness in the past year. Callahan says being evicted is the second most common way New Jerseyans face homelessness, and it's more common than substance abuse. It's not being diagnosed with serious mental illness. It's not because you're struggling with addiction, right? It's because you're a normal person struggling, right, with the realities of our economy. Leaders acknowledge that there's also a 13% increase in sheltered homelessness, which still adds up to a drop in people experiencing homelessness overall. They spoke at Homefront in Lawrenceville today, one of New Jersey's organizations helping families experiencing homelessness, or right on the cusp of it. Over 450 families a month are calling us for that help. With critical help from DCA and other partners, we're able to intervene quickly, and we're really proud of that. 105,817 people access prevention programs this year. Right, that's incredible. We have never seen so many people throughout the state need access to preventive, preventive mechanisms and interventions, but also to, right, just to get information just in case. Callahan made a point to mention New Jersey's program helping people who are facing eviction, emphasizing that keeping someone in a home is less expensive for the state than housing them in a shelter. For less than $670 on average of cost per household, right, 97% of the families in this program never enter shelter, right? One third of them stabilize using their own funds and, and income, and all they need was rapid, rapid intensive case management. While leaders shared good news, they say there's much more that can be done. While we are here today because of the efforts of the Office of Homeless Prevention and its partners in New Jersey have made strides, there is still much work for us all to do. We are seeing unsheltered people sleeping in office buildings and food pantry, besides encampment communities and abandoned trailer parks. We have people who are in a major crisis and we say, well, I hope you have a big box full of documents, you know, and I hope they're all up to date and all correct and, you know, that also that we don't lose them. Let's fund people so that they can help people get these things. They can help, you know, that woman with dementia who doesn't remember where she was born, but we're demanding a birth certificate from her. In Lawrenceville, I'm Ted Goldberg. NJ Spotlight News.
In our Spotlight on Business report, there's a new push at the federal level to ban a toy experts say shouldn't be in homes with young kids. Congressman Frank Pallone is introducing legislation for a national ban on water beads marketed for kids. The small round sensory toys are colorful and can look like candy. Their gel-like textures make them appealing for water and other play, but health experts warn they can become dangerous or deadly when swallowed by children. That's because the beads quickly absorb fluids, including those inside the body, and swell to a larger size, sometimes blocking intestines or causing other grave internal injuries. According to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, there were roughly 7,800 emergency room visits between 2016 and 2022 as a result of kids ingesting water beads. Pallone's Ban Water Beads Act would direct the Safety Commission to enforce the restrictions and help warn families as millions of water beads have already been sold. But so long as they're being sold to children and parents as toys or crafts, um, the hazard's going to continue to exist. The U.S. inflation rate has come down significantly since hitting a 40-year high in 2022, but most people are still feeling the severe effects of cost-of-living increases high inflation is causing, especially Black and Hispanic New Jerseyans. A new report by the Rutgers Center for Women and Work finds non-white households take a harder hit because they often have lower average incomes and less to shield them from price increases. For more on this, I'm joined by Yana Rogers, an economist and faculty director of the Center for Women and Work. Yana, thanks so much for joining me. You know, it's one thing to talk about inflation. It's another to really look at who it's hitting hardest. Why, aside from average salary, are non-white households feeling this the most? We found when we looked in detail at which goods and services rose the most in price, that non-white households are consuming more of the goods and services that rose the most in price. So in particular, transportation, you know, especially gas, uh, new cars, car insurance, that rose a lot in price. And we saw that black and Hispanic households consume relatively more transportation items than other households. So they were hit hard by that. Um, other categories included food and beverages, um, as well as housing. So those are the big three. They rose the most, and those vulnerable households consumed them more, relatively more, than other households. So it's not just how much income you're getting, it's how that money is spent that really determines whether or not you can absorb these changes, it sounds like. Exactly. Uh, everybody in New Jersey has been hit by inflation, but some were hit more than others uh, because of what they consume. But also, as you just said, it's also based on their uh, income and whether or not they have uh, solid employment. So some households are more vulnerable because their incomes are lower or they may not have a full-time income earner. And so are there programs or safety nets that the state has or needs to have based on the center's findings to help cushion this for residents? That's a great question. Uh, we advocate in our report generally for a stronger social safety net because some people still downplay the need for a strong social safety net. 
New Jersey is already a leader in terms of progressive labor market policies, but our report is there to emphasize that this kind of social spending does not go uh, in vain, that it's really needed, especially by vulnerable households. Yana, was there a difference between uh, if a male was head of household versus a female uh, about how that spending impacted or what the spending was going toward impacted the inflation hits that they were taking? That is a really good question. Um, we went into the report thinking that women headed households would be harder hit by men than men. Uh, that was not the case again, because uh, largely that transportation item, transportation rose so much more than other categories and men spend proportionately more on transportation than women. So if we look only at who consumes what, uh, men were actually a little bit harder hit by inflation than women in New Jersey. But once you add in who's more able to absorb those price increases, uh, that's men. Their average earnings are higher. They also have higher employment rates. Really interesting findings there. Yana Rogers for us from the Rutgers Center for Women in Work. Yana, thank you. Thank you, Brianna. On Wall Street, stocks were little changed today as investors prepare for key inflation data coming out this week. Here's how the markets closed. A new three-part investigation by NJ Advanced Media is raising disturbing questions about the deadly July 5th fire aboard a cargo ship at Port Newark. That's where a vessel loaded with 1,200 used cars bound for Africa burst into flames, killing two Newark firefighters as they worked through dangerous conditions trying to put out the blaze. Well, the cause is still being investigated by the U.S. Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board, and the results could take a year before being made public. But after sifting through court filings, public records, and hours of radio transmissions, investigative reporter Ted Sherman found the port fire was a battle the firefighters never saw coming and one they weren't prepared to fight. Ted joins me now. Well, Ted Sherman, uh, it's a pleasure to get to sit down and talk with you. Tell me just first, after looking through all of these records, did Newark and the fire department have a plan of action when they arrived on scene that night? No, the records that we looked at clearly show that they did not have a clue as to what to do. In fact, we spoke to firefighting experts and and even without the reports that we had, they, they said specifically that, that they came onto the site and didn't know what to do next. But then when you go and read through the, the uh, incident reports that we obtained through public records request, it says it all out in, in black and white. In fact, a number of, of uh, captains in their reports specifically said, I've never been trained in shipboard firefighting. I've never been on a cargo ship. I'm curious too, because that night we learned that initially they arrived on scene. It seemed like things were somewhat stable. The crew members on this cargo ship were accounted for. What happened there and why did firefighters continue going inside the container ship uh, to fight this blaze? Was that unveiled in your investigation? Yeah, there was, there was actually no reason for them to go in. Um, when, they, when they first showed up, 
um, both the incident reports and, and the audio that, that uh, is now available talked about the fact that this was, this was a, this, this was a know-nothing fire. It, 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 uh, um, they, there were two, two cars on the top deck that were on fire. The commanding officer in charge of the response said, we're taking care of this. We don't need mutual aid. He canceled EMS. He canceled other departments. He said, said I just don't think I'm going to need them. And then one of the, the battalion chiefs decided to go down deeper into the ship to see why there was still smoke coming up from, from a lower deck. In speaking with firefighting experts, that's just not the standard operating procedure on a, on, on a ship fire like this. You either, you either use the ship's fire suppression system or you stand back and let it burn out and cool it down until it burns itself out. Would those firefighters have been alive today if there was standard operating procedures in place and they were followed? It depends on what the standard operating procedures were, but there, uh, everyone I've spoken to say that there was no reason for anybody to go down into that, that compartment. And you talked earlier about how things got bad in a hurry. Things got very, very bad in a hurry. They went down there, they thought it was okay initially when they went down there were two two cars on fire on the deck but you could see in the in the compartment and then within the space of minutes the smoke just started filling up the compartment where nobody could see anything it was zero visibility and the only thing that they had the only breadcrumb trail out of the, the department out of the compartment was this fire hose you let go of that you're disoriented you you might not ever find your way out. Uh, two firefighters did find their way out and, and two unfortunately perished after, after they lost their way. Ted Sherman with NJ Advanced Media on this uh, three-part series. Ted, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. If you need to see a doctor, RWJ Barnabas Health has two easy ways to do it from anywhere. You can see an urgent care provider 24-7 on any device with our Telemed app. Or use our website to book a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist, even as a new patient. You've taken every precaution, and so have we. So don't delay your care any longer. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.